and welcome back to the History Machine podcast. This is episode 16 on the Chin Empire. I'm Niall and my co-host is... Cahill. Hello. <laughs> so, where we left off at the last time, we had just anointed the King of Chin as the new Emperor of all of China. And he had established himself with the title Qin Shi Huangdi, which was the first august emperor of China. After this unification, now that the Qin have finally unified all of the states, and the rank of king was no longer deemed acceptable, and we moved on to the new rank of emperor, it was time to make some drastic changes. The kind of changes you can only make when you've unified an entire area. Now, I'm going to make a tiny little bit of a note here, just the idea of the unification of China. It is not the China that we know today. It's not that landmass. It's much more the central states, and it's much more focused on the east side. But the first emperor has effectively been the first guy to properly, fully unify this whole area. And from this point onward, the norm in Chinese history will be to have China unified as opposed to separated. That when it is separated, that feels like the chaotic point. And it's only a matter of time before somebody takes the mandate of heaven and reunifies the area. With the new dynasty, we follow a couple of new rules. And kind of like the Avatar, they have various cycles of like fire, water, earth and wind. So the last group that had some kind of semblance of control were the Zhao. And they were deemed to be of the element of fire. So the Qin are going to rule under the next element, water. And this also had some extra connotations because water is associated with the number six, also with the colour black. So this is a real Sesame Street thing where it's like, the chin bringing you today the colour black, the element water, and the number six. <laughs> so, so things are really focused on these aspects. So if, if you ever see any kind of dramatisation or um, live action or even an animation uh, depicting the chin, they're always wearing black clothes. Even before they unify the empire, they're just put in like black armour, black clothes, black cloaks. They wouldn't, you know, possibly they wouldn't really have worn that. But it's, they're so associated with the colour black, the element water, and the number six. As a result of all of this, the Qin are able to standardise just about everything. So they standardise the units of length, they standardise weights, they especially standardise writing, because apparently that was a chaotic mess of different scripts, different areas, different territories, slightly different dialects, different writings, different symbols. But they standardise writing, which is a big, big thing. And they also standardise even to the point of axle measurements. It has its pros and its cons. The cons are you lose a lot of ancient texts, you lose a lot of old ways to do things, but the big positive is if I'm a merchant and I've got a cart and I'm traveling 200 miles and my cart breaks down and I take it into a carpenter's, he will actually be expected to go, yeah, I need an axle of about that length and I make them all the time. It's not a problem. So by having things standardized, you actually have interchangeability and it's very, very, very useful. With this now changes, drastic changes brought in by the chin just to standardize everything and make it a little bit more ultimately kind of Chinese and unified. The first emperor decides, what's the first thing I'm going to focus on? So <laughs> once you have established an empire, uh, like any, you know, grandiose ruler, your next step is to immediately try and live forever. So <laughs> he has the hopes of finding a mythical land where there could be the elixir of immortality and the possibility of eternal youth. So the first emperor decides to send an expedition of 3,000 men and 3,000 women to find and return with, very importantly, the elixir of immortality. Now, the expedition, unsurprisingly, does not return. Now, in a legalist state, the idea if they were given this really big task and they didn't come back with the elixir of immortality, they're almost all certainly going to be executed. And <laughs> funny about this one is it's rumoured that this expedition did set off, did sail, found an area in Japan and settled there. Colonised or founded sections of Japan. 
So it's a nice little extra bonus. So just take the money and run, basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, so once that quest doesn't quite work out, the next Imperial plan of action is to secure the northern borders and prevent the Zhongnu from attacking and then also invading the southern Yue tribes. In 221 BC, it was estimated that the Zhongnu had as many as 200,000 capable horsemen. And this is a very big problem because you've, you've united the section of China, you want to make sure you hold it. And the biggest threat to you now is effectively step archers coming down and conquering what you have just conquered. So you have to be sure that the areas you have just taken are going to stay within your control. Can't get lax now, can't really take a backseat, have to make sure that the border is secured. So the Qin general, Meng Qin, is placed in command. Now he is from a very long line of military leaders. His father was Meng Wu and his brother is Meng Yi. Now, Meng Qian is renowned as an absolutely excellent builder and an inventor. And he's famous kind of as a wall and road builder and kind of, you know, fortifications. And he is also credited with the invention of a 12 or 13 string bridge. So the first emperor is going to send Meng Qian north with 300,000 troops and have the crown prince Fuxu serve as an officer in the army. So their plan is to effectively get the Xiongnu and push them back a distance of 1,000 li, which is about... 400 kilometers at 300 miles. Then the plan is to construct a Great Wall. Now, this is not the Great Wall that we know of today. It is some rammed earth and it incorporated existing fortifications and structures, because if they're there, you might as well use them, and natural barriers to try and make some kind of a fortification or barrier to make it very difficult for the steppe nomads to venture south again. The distance that they need to build and connect these fortifications together and cover as kind of somewhat of a protective border is 10,000 li, which is about 4,000 kilometers or 3,000 miles. So there's going to be that rammed earth fortification. Some places are stronger than others. Some incorporate forts. But this is the basis or the foundation of what would be known today as the Great Wall. So Cahill, what does the history machine think about Meng Qian and Prince Fushu in fighting and pushing back the Xiongnu troops. So this one, and maybe a bit unsurprising given now that we're seeing the Qin at the kind of apex of their power, it had them with basically an 80% chance to win. Oh, wow, okay. So the fact that they won, they succeeded in pushing them back, not a big shock at the history machine. Just the sheer scale of the, of the army, even though it was big on both sides, you have one that's a lot more organized, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Casualties dealt on both sides. Uh, Meng Chen didn't really deal out any more casualties than expected, but he took a lot fewer than expected. So I suppose it was just a very, from the history machine's perspective, very clean, organized, you know, expected to win, but didn't have any slip ups along the way towards that. But I, I suppose that's kind of the plan. The plan is just push him back, build a fortification, keep it, keep it fortified. So it would make sense that it's not going to be we go in, we kill 200,000 horsemen. And it's also not we go in and we lose 200,000 people trying to kill 200,000 horsemen. Yeah. So the fact that they, you know, push them back or defeat them and then, you know, establish a firm line, in the, you know, in the ground to go, this is the point you are not allowed to cross anymore. It probably would make sense. Yeah, it's, move, it's, it's moving into kind of long-term strategy rather than, and, you know, basically they get to pick the battles on their terms now. They're not, they're not kind of in rivalry with another kingdom trying to get in control. Mm-hmm. They're really calling the shots at this point. Yeah, it makes sense. So with the northern border secure, the Qin's next plan invade the south with the intent of absorbing the Yu tribes located in that area. The Yu tribes cover the southern area of modern China and it includes like parts of modern day Vietnam, their section, their territory that they were controlled. 
what the U tribes have is they're really rich in farmland. They've got a tropical climate and they're known for their access to really exotic trade goods such as uh, rhino horns, kingfisher feathers, jade, elephant tusks, so ivory, and even kind of just like fisheries. You know, they're the one to chase. And actually, this is something in the four episodes we've done we've never mentioned, and I really have to mention it because I, don't, I think it's a crime to talk about Chinese history and not mention the very important one of silk. For those who are in the know, silk is pretty much a magic material. Even today, it's the closest material you have to bulletproof. It is more bulletproof than Kevlar. It just happens to be a lot more expensive, so it's not made into bulletproof vests. Uh, silk has these magical properties of its very light and strong material, very fine, very soft, uh, very comfortable. And the silk trade is so profitable that you will find people in Rome buying silk and other people giving out to people in Rome because it's a very expensive and decadent material. And also that it's, it's, it's almost transparent, depending on how fine you get it. But the growing of silk is a huge income for the longest time for China. And it's it what brings so many merchants halfway. It's, it's why it's called the Silk Road. When the Silk Road is a Western term, but it's why it's called that. It's like, that's what comes across it. It's, it's a material that can travel long distances. It's very light and it's very expensive. And as an extra little bonus point, for some troops during this whole Warring States period, some of them were paid in silk because silk is actually the best material to pay troops in. It is light, it's cost-effective, it's worth a lot, pound for pound, it's worth a fortune. And also, if you pay them in food, the food can spoil, it has to travel long distances, and even for, you would think gold and silver would be good, but they're hard to acquire unless you're mining ferociously to try and get some more, and if it's not there, it's not there. And lastly, coins that are minted might not be accepted in different territories. So silk is a universal currency in early China. So it's super important. And the UA tribes would have had a certain amount of silk as well. So they have the ivory, the kingfisher feathers, the jade, the, the great farmland, the food and the silk. You know, as I said, nearly, nearly got away with doing four episodes on China, not mentioning probably one of the most famous materials to come from there. Even for the longest time in the Western world, they had no idea where silk came from. They thought it grew on trees. Yeah, it would be more than a thousand years, I think, that until they'd learn, figure out how to produce it themselves in Europe through allegedly very various like trickery and theft and stuff to basically discover that it was like produced by worms and then figure out how to have them do it themselves. So it was it was a monopoly basically uh, for centuries and centuries for the longest time. And if you're not aware with it, it's quite it's quite a fun thing. It's effectively the silkworm is a type of worm that grows into be a silk moth. It's a heavily domesticated insect. And the moth itself is quite grotesque and ugly. And, and its only big advantage is that its larvae produce a very large volume of silk. And the way to make silk is you get the larvae, you get them to spin their You feed them a lot of leaves for a long time. They spin a cocoon. And then at a point, you boil them. And depending on how well you boil them, if you boil them too long, you'll break the fibers too much. If you boil them too, too little, the fibers are too coarse. So you've got to boil them just right. And then you get this very fine thread that you can pull. And it could be as long as a mile pulling this single thread and eventually you have small threads of silk that you're going to put together and make this exquisite super garment so very expensive very costly but the richest of the rich will have it silk will be for the longest time the top tier clothing anyway that's one of the reasons between silk and ivory you know jade and and elephant tusks this area wants to be incorporated so the chin decide that this place is definitely worth taking and incorporating the southern region and it also gives them access to the ocean which is great um so they're going to try and invade the area and take over it now it will take five attempts 
to conquer the region because of the dense forestry, the humid climate and the really poor roads for logistics. And eventually the Chin will succeed, but only after they've built a canal into new territory and making it way easier to transport supplies and troops. The Chin send a total of 500,000 troops to conquer the area and they're commanded by Meng Wu, brother of Meng Qian, and another general who will die on the campaign. So the Yu area is eventually conquered and incorporated into the Qin Empire. So Cahal, now considering we don't have all of their attempts, what does the history machine think about the incorporation of the southern lands by the Qin? It still has the Qin as the favourites in this one, again, as you'd expect, being at the height of their power, but you can mm-hmm. tell that um, the wealth that's in the Yu and the level of organisation was a lot more because it only gave the Qin a 60% chance to win in these battles, which they did overall. This one was a good bit bloodier. The Chin dealt out about 12% more casualties than expected, but they, and impressively, they took 25% fewer than expected. I think the history machine was expecting more from the U and did have them with maybe a, a very good chance at coming out on mm-hmm. top, um, albeit not absolute favourites. Okay, that's fair. That's actually quite reasonable. Um, so onward, so now that they have incorporated the Southern Lands, and the empire is even bigger than it's ever been. This is, and a bit of a spoiler, this is the, the maximum extent of the empire. So in 213 BC, the first emperor has historical books burned, and then later he has a few hundred scholars buried alive who were opposed to the state. And notably, most of these scholars are Confucian. Now this will come back a little bit, kind of bite him, it, it'll play later into our story, but it's, it's something that he's very famous for. They kind of go, the first emperor buried scholars alive that he didn't agree with, that he thought, you know, we're going back now to the Lord Shang idea of legalism. You know, this is one of the vermin of the state. These are intellectuals. They're people who are nostalgizing the past. We need to make sure that their records and their bits and pieces aren't kept. That's just an important thing to mention because it's what he's remembered for, for being the cruel tyrant. The first emperor buried scholars alive. So in 212 BC, the Qin find themselves in a wonderful position for virtually any country. They have an excess of finances and an excess of manpower. So an estimated 20 million labourers are available and 2 million of them would be available for just vanity projects. So the rest will be, you know, doing the usual agriculture. But 2 million people now can just be pulled for any project. If you want to build something, you want to construct something, you want to make a monument, we have that. The first emperor at this point begins the construction of an unbelievably ostentatious palace at Ipang. Now, this palace is described by our grand historian, now I'm going to give you the rough approximations. 693 metres by 116 metres, or 81,000 square metres, which works out at 870,000 square feet. Now, that's colossal. This is meant to be the, the square footage of this palace. Funnily enough, and you would not think this is the case, but in reality, modern excavations have shown that the dimensions of this palace are closer to 1.3 kilometres by 420 metres or half a million square metres, which works out at six million square feet. Now, this is a palace. This isn't like the grounds, the something. This is the planning size for a palace, six million square feet. And that palace is being worked on now. Among other projects, this is being built. The ostentatious level of it is outrageous. Meanwhile, he also continues work on his tomb. Now, his tomb began construction when he was 13, when he first took the throne. It's kind of the idea of Now that you take over, they immediately start building your tomb. You know, eventually you're going to die. Now, this tomb is also unbelievable because literally it is a a hollowed out mountain in terms of size. And famously, it will contain 
8,000 terracotta warriors. We'd never mentioned the terracotta warriors either. And funnily enough, the grand historian never mentioned the terracotta warriors. So I'm going to take just a minute to talk about them and to kind of see their importance, even historically, and some interesting little bits and pieces about it. So when the first emperor is going to die, kind of like the pharaohs of old, he's going to be buried with really nice things. And part of it is like, I want to be buried with a wan of troops, like a battalion, which is roughly 10,000. So 8,000 or so, not even terracotta, but 8,000 or so warriors need to be prepared from. And obviously you go, do I make them out of gold and silver? Am I that ostentatious? Am I that much wealth? You can't. You can't have that much money to do it. Gold, silver, jade, ivory, even iron. It's going to be too expensive to make them. They're going to be too cumbersome. They're going to be too heavy. So you go, all right. So you go, what's my cheap material? You go, maybe I could make them out of wood. Well, that's going to take way too long to like carve and crack and make and, you know, and put it together and the skills is going to be very high level and, and it'll rot away over time. So that's still a problem. So literally in logistics, you go, what if I make them out of clay? Now, today, you can go to China, you can go and visit like the palaces or the terracotta warriors, and you can buy a terracotta warrior, a life-sized one, and a skilled craftsman can make one terracotta warrior a day. They have clay, which is an abundant material. They make, effectively, like uh, a couple of standard setups with the, ar- the armor, the setup, the heads, the faces, the legs, the, the bits and pieces. They fire them up in a kiln, take them out, attach them again, and they have, within 12 hours of work, a full standing terracotta warrior, which is very impressive. Now, logistically, they have 2 million free-flowing men here in terms of for the labor. 8,000 terracotta warriors sounds very impressive, but realistically, the first emperor could easily have had 100 skilled artisans working on this project. And if you can make one terracotta warrior a day, then that means that 100 people can make 30,000 a year. The idea that you only have 8,000 buried is not even an impressive feat, but in the sense of, I would not be surprised, and historians probably wouldn't be at this point either, that we may find in the future other areas cracked open and other battalions of terracotta warriors just sitting there. Because their numbers might be immense, but the way in which they were manufactured was very, very efficient, low cost and inexpensive. So it's a really cool thing that he's buried with this many amount of troops. But realistically, it's just showing the level of manpower he could have had even more. It is, although I will say, like, making an army of sculptures is a cool way to show off your logistics. Many people have tried and failed to get across that logistics are impressive and are the the key thing to so many of these things. And that is a very fun way of of demonstrating it. I think it really, really, really is. It's, it, is, it is super impressive. And it's kind of the thing if you go, how could somebody bury themselves with that many warriors? And literally the answer is, how did he not make more? It's, and it's a simple numbers game. And it's crazy to think of it, the numbers and the scale and the size and the scope. But because he made them out of, he didn't make them out of gold or ju- even like their, the only thing that isn't made of clay is their weapons. And a lot of them were stolen later when the tomb was raided. Like people didn't go in there and steal the, the clay warriors because those are, you know, not expensive. But you have, your, you have your terracotta warriors, you have your terracotta, they have terracotta chariots and horses and some animals. And um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about his tomb as well. Part of it is not excavated yet. It's, now, it may have been and just not revealed to the public, but his tomb has not actually been fully opened. Only parts of it have been checked out. Parts of it have been uh, shown and displayed to the public. And the inner chambers have not been revealed. And famously... The Grand Historian did mention that in his tomb, he was meant to have had some kind of scale model of the empire, or at least his palace in there, and rivers made of mercury, placed within it, within the inner tomb, which is kind of sounds really, really, really cool. 
but the the real diehard evidence for it is around the area of his tomb. There's an abnormally large amount of trace mercury around the area, which would insinuate that whether or not he had them in there, you know, he has the kind of the little scale model with the the rivers made of mercury in there. It would insinuate there was definitely at least some mercury somewhere in his tomb. Uh, so super impressive kind of stuff. Uh, and the scope and scale of the logistics and the building projects is awe-inspiring. We'll move on a tiny bit because that, that was kind of just crazy to show this is what he's doing. This is what they're building. At this time, just a little bit after, we have a second assassination attempt. Zhao Zhanli is a very, very skilled musician, world-class level, and he is wanted by the Qin state. But when he's caught, they decide that this man is so skilled, it would be a crime to, you know, deny his talents to the emperor or to, to people in general. But we can't just let him kind of wander about. He's a liability. So instead, we'll blind him. We're going to keep him alive and make him the official court musician. Now, Zhao Zhanli continues to be the court musician blinded for many, many, many years. And he sits there biding his time. Eventually, he knows that on this particular day, he should be alone with the emperor for a private performance. And he decides to replace his usual musical instrument with one filled with lead. And then, suddenly, out of nowhere, in a similarly blind assassination attempt, he literally blindingly attacks the emperor. Now, the assassination turns out to be a horrendous failure because he can't find him. And eventually the emperor kind of stands still in the middle of this court and he cannot be, <laughs> the, the court musician can't find him. And eventually some guards come in and finally they have him arrested and killed. But the assassination goes down. It's this horrendous attempt. Now, considering this is assassination attempt number two, and even it's assassination attempt in person number two, the emperor decides, I can't take any more chances with this. So he has tunnels built in between palaces and buildings so that he can secretly move as required if need be. So it's if anything goes wrong, I can go from A to B and secretly. All that aside, uh, now that the first emperor is actually in charge, he decides he needs to somehow maintain the mandate of heaven. Now, the emperor restarts the Feng and Shan rituals. Now, the exact details of these rituals, they're meant to be very ancient. They have been lost in time. And in, in really keeping up with tradition, the emperor goes, we'll just, we'll just make our own <laughs> rituals to replace them. So in order to maintain the tradition, we're just going to make up our own traditions and we'll, we'll, we'll say that they're Feng and that they're Shan and we'll continue with it. Honestly, pick, pick like a tradition from your given culture. There's a really high probability it was something like that that started. Yeah. <laughs> it Probably. is kind of hilarious how many of these things were started. Like for the, mod, for the modern listener, so many of these things started in like 1800s nationalism. It's like, we need things to distinguish ourselves. Come up with something. And it's usually the whole, we rediscovered this ancient mystical art. And it's like, no, you didn't. You made it up. (laughs) Or you copied it. Or you decided to come up with something. So in likewise fashion, the first emperor decides, I'm going to make up the rituals to maintain the mandate of heaven. So he does this and he decides part of it is going to go on a tour and placing, you know, steels, which is like kind of like a monument in eight sacred mountains as part of a pilgrimage. At this point as well, now the emperor has already tried the whole, uh, we're going to go on an expedition or send people off on an expedition for the elixir of immortality. But he becomes more and more obsessed with elixirs of immortality and the idea of living forever. So naturally, he tries to get the world's best alchemists and mystics and magicians and, you know, quack doctors and bring them all together and kind of go, somebody needs to make me an elixir of immortality. We got to get this this has to go, I will pay you like a mountain of gold if you can successfully do it. Just make sure that you can make me live forever. 
And these alchemists and mystics and other kind of, you know, charlatans try to make some kind of potion for him. And most of them are mixing dangerous amounts of mercury and arsenic together to try and make some kind of magic property potion. (laughs) We now know that arsenic and mercury will not keep you alive forever or indeed very long at all. No, they won't. Um, Now, I'm going to take a little tiny bit of a side note just about mercury as a whole. So anyone who studies a little bit of chemistry will tell you a little bit about it. It is a... Okay. It's a heavy metal. It is liquid at room temperature. It's really funky and fun in the sense of it is like it is a liquid metal. Think like Terminator 2 job. It, It looks really cool. Blends very well with a lot of things. It's got a fine color. It is associated, particularly in alchemy, of having all of these mystical properties, even though it, it's, it's effectively toxic. Um, and it's incredibly dangerous for you and for people around you. It would be really, really cool if it wasn't so poisonous. Yes. <laughs> and the issue here is that he's trying to find something that's the opposite of poisonous. Yes. And instead, he's getting the poison. So when mystics were kind of looking at it, they go, Mercury is such an incredible material. They just assumed it must have crazy super magical, because it has crazy mechanical and chemical properties. So it must have crazy magical properties. And surely, if there was some kind of elixir of immortality, it would involve mercury that would probably make you in some kind of shiny and chrome-esque image of yourself that you're, you know, literally metal plated, something like that. So it definitely doesn't have those properties. But what's important is the alchemists and mystics at that time thought it did. So desperately to try and make this man live forever, they're very quickly poisoning him. In 211 BC, the emperor is nearly 50 years of age and he has undertaken three imperial tours of the empire. And then by... Oh yes, sorry, one last thing I forgot to mention was in 218 BC, there was one more assassination attempt. This one is probably both the best and worst attempt. Um, It was a strong man on top of the side of a mountain He drops a boulder off of it and he crushes what he thinks is the imperial carriage. Luckily, the emperor survives and as a result from then on, the emperor incorporates decoy carriages into his entourage wherever he's going. Because he just wants to make it life a lot more difficult for any would-be assassin to, in the future, drop a boulder on top of him. So it's a real black swan moment of the next time a boulder drops, there's only a one in eight chance it's going to actually kill me. <laughs> so I think after the last few episodes where we had so many crazy elaborate stories, it feels like they're running out of ideas here because it's just like, what if a blind guy yeah. swung at him and maybe some other guy tried to drop a heavy thing on him? It's like they're just there isn't the same creativity that there was before. No, there certainly isn't. Now, I suppose walking up to him and just killing him is not actually the easiest thing to do. So maybe they're kind of going, we got we to gotta think, uh, you know, outside the box here, go around the problem. How do we do this? And like, maybe, maybe a boulder falling, a rock falling from the sky will kill him. Like, That's what we're going to go with. <laughs> so, okay, I'll move on here. And in 212 BC, this is a funny little, this is a funny little incident until it's not a funny little incident. So in 212 BC, a meteorite fell to the earth. And... On that meteorite was written by some mysterious assailant, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit because it's not the exact, you know, ancient script, but what's written on it was, the first emperor will die and his land shall be divided. And the emperor has all of the locals in that area first questioned, then executed, then he has that meteorite pulped to dust. Just to put it out there, he's like, this is not, it's definitely not going to (laughs) happen. So in 209 BC, the emperor begins his fourth tour of the empire. And with him is Lai Shi, who is more than 70 years of age and has been in power for 37 years. Prince Hue, who is 18 of 20 sons and is currently 20 years of age. Zhao Gao, 
who is going to be the villainous uh, eunuch of our story, who is also the tutor of the young prince, Prince Huey, and Meng Yi, who is the general and chief minister and is a big enemy of Zhao Gao. Now, Meng Yi is the brother of Meng Qian, who during our tour is up north guarding the border with the crown prince against the Zhongnu. So, to begin this story, historically, Zhao Gao had been found guilty of some very unspecified crime by Meng Yi, and Zhao Gao, by some means, possibly bribery or some kind of connections, manages to avoid the death penalty. And since then, the two, that is Zhao Gao and Meng Yi, hate each other. So the next person who is also involved in the story is a Taoist advisor, Zhu Fu, who has dispatched for an elixir of immortality. Now, this expedition was meant to be set off the islands at the east coast of China. And it was rumoured that there was several small islands off there that would have an elixir of immortality. Now, Zhu Fu has failed to produce any elixir, and his excuse is unbelievably far-fetched. And he claims, and just take a step back here now because he's talking to somewhat rational human beings, but he claims that they have been trying desperately to get this elixir of immortality. But there was a great fish, like a really big fish, and it has been stopping them getting to these islands safely. Now, amazingly, the emperor buys this excuse. Now, he is not an idiot, but he just goes, oh, okay, that's, that's a very reasonable excuse. Now, this might be for a few reasons. The first is the emperor actually has very little experience at all with the oceans. He doesn't, that might be like, okay, maybe... Maybe a fish is something that could stop a boat. I don't know. Um, it, it seems to be a valid excuse. And also, at this time, it's been noted that the emperor has been suffering from nightmares. And in those nightmares, he's been wrestling a sea dragon or some kind of sea monster. And he thinks in his head, you know, when he said this, that this great fish might be related to this sea dragon. And that's possibly what's... This great animal doesn't want me to live forever. That's trying to foil my attempts. Now... In a very strange event, and you know we're getting stranger with the stories sometimes, the emperor decides to wander onto the beach in full regal attire. He has his men gather fish in nets, drag them up along into shallow waters. He then kind of plods into the waters himself, pulls out a repeating crossbow, and literally shoots the netted fish. Meanwhile, all of the court who's along here for, for this tour is standing around the beach complimenting and applauding his incredible skills as a marksman and how well and incredible he is as like a warrior and a ruler and a leader as he is literally, you know, shoot, I want to say shooting fish in a barrel, but he's literally just spearing fish with a repeating crossbow. Those are high quality yes men right there. <laughs> they really, really are. So, so now this erratic behaviour at best is possibly due to all of these constant you know mercury and arsenic concoctions that are definitely not good for his health and for the restlessness that he's that he seems to be you know displaying here it's yeah one of the one of the other mercury facts is you know the phrase mad as a hatter that comes from the fact that hatters used to work with mercury it is not good for your mental health no certainly isn't oh god so anyway he's he's, he's got a lot going on here so soon after this crazy event uh, while the emperor is still on tour he falls ill now, this illness is probably, and I say probably with a very high <laughs> probability here, related to the, all of the cocktails of heavy metals and mercury and arsenic that he's been consuming over the years. And the first emperor dispatches Meng Yi home. He's like, okay, I got a problem. I'm, I'm pretty ill right now. You're going, you're going back. Now, he had earlier sent his eldest son, the crown prince Fushu, 
and exiled him to the, the northern border for patrol. Now, this was related to those burying of those Confucian scholars because the prince, the crown prince Fuxiu, was not impressed by the action. He thought it was barbaric. He thought it was unnecessary. And he had a falling out with his father. And in response to this, his father had him exiled up north to say, you're going to mind the border. You're going to stay up there. You're going to take care of things until, you know, you get it through your head um, that what I do is correct. The crown prince is currently exiled very far up north. As the emperor's health continues to deteriorate, he writes a letter to be delivered to Fushu, the crown prince. And the contents say something I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but the details are, you know, the devil is in the detail here now. It says, once I die, go to Zhang Yang and organise my funeral. Full stop. That's it. That, that's all the message says. And he seals this letter, hands it over then to Zhao Gao, and then just dies. <laughs> uh, now, the emperor dying in his carriage, the only people who are present for his death are Zhao Gao, Lai Shi, and a handful of eunuchs. They, they're all in, obviously, a panicked state. They go, okay, he was, two seconds ago he was alive, he's dead now. <laughs> uh, he just handed us a letter and he just told us what was in the contents. Um, what do we do? So Lai Shi has the body placed in the imperial carriage. And his fear is that they're so far from the capital that a riot or a coup or something else is going to occur and this situation needs to be controlled and they are the people who need to control it. Now, the unspoken plan, because they can't talk about this too loud in case anybody hears anything, is that they're going to bring the body back to the capital first, notify Fushu, and then announce that the emperor is dead. And for now, it is business as usual. They are sealing letters. They are continuing the tour. They are passing around notes. You know, they're shooting fish. So <laughs> Zhao Gao is very much in this story the villain of it. He's very much villainized and, and, and for good cause. You'll see why. But Zhao Gao now urges the only present prince, Huey, who he happens to also be a tutor to, to take the reins of power and usurp the vacant throne. Now, Prince Huey hesitates. And in a bit of an emotional outburst that is unlike Zhao Gao, he pretty much grabs the prince, shakes him violently and says something to the tune of like, other princes, they've killed their fathers, they've killed their family, they've done everything, they've wiped out their brothers, and history doesn't bat an eyelid at them as long as they take control. And there is a vacant throne. You don't even have to do anything. It's vacant. For the love of everything, take the thing and have a bit of a spine, you absolute useless coward. At this time of trying to convince Prince Huey you need to take over, Zhao hands him over the contents of the Emperor's last letter to Prince Huey and informs him that the contents, which if you remember said, get Prince Fuxiu, take my body back to Zhang Yang and have him preside the funeral. If the prince is presiding the funeral, that would insinuate he's next in line. Because if Prince Fuxiu is doing the funeral rites, that's kind of what's usually reserved for, you know, the next person to take over. Because the contents of the letter insinuate that it would insinuate that Prince Fushu is going to take over. So Prince Huey and Zhao Gao now meet with Lai Shi and they share the plan for a coup. Lai Shi is initially horrified by the actions. Zhao Gao convinces Lai Shi we should go along with this plan on the basis, and this is very interesting if it's true, but no prime minister up until that point in their history has ever successfully handed over power, rank, titles and estates to their next family's generation. Now, that is courtroom shenanigans if there ever was. And the plan is, if we put Huey on the throne, this is the best way to make sure that that pattern ends and that your family can continue to be like second or third or fourth generation prime ministers. This meeting and this plan is known to history as the Sand Hill Plot. 
At this point, the emperor's been dead quite a while and he's beginning to rot and smell in the really hot climate and, you know, the high humidity. And to deal with this, Lai Shi surrounds the emperor's carriage with just other carriages of rotten fish to try and mask the smell. Now, it's got to tell you how bad he must have smelled if other rotting fish to surround him is meant to both mask the smell and smell better. Now, um, to go ahead with this plot, now, they're all going to go in on it. Zhao Gao and Lai Shi have the original letter destroyed. There's no evidence of what the emperor has done. There's no request now for Prince Fushu to come back and do the funeral. They make a counterfeit letter. They seal it with the, the emperor's seal and they send it via a single messenger to make sure that it gets there very rapidly to Meng Qian and Fushu. So both of them are up at the top of the north guarding the wall in that province. The new letter says something to the effect the emperor is extremely displeased with these two men's effort on the northern border and they should immediately kill themselves. <laughs> Escalated quickly. <laughs> it certainly did. So the letter arrives to Meng Qian and Crown Prince Fushu. They read the contents and are both incredibly surprised. And Meng Chen is particularly sceptical of this letter. So he kind of sits there and, and turns and kind of goes, wait a second, okay. He goes, so we've been up here defending away against the Xiongnu, making sure the border is safe, minding the crown prince, taking care of this territory while the emperor has been gone on his trips. And he sends a single letter out of the blue from a single messenger that only says, please kill yourselves, doesn't give any other information of what's going on, and we're just supposed to take this as fact. We really, really need to investigate this further. Now, he suggests, uh, Meng Chen, that is, that we should do something. This stinks. He doesn't know what to do. And Prince Fushu, though, is he's kind of romanticized in this sense. He may not have done this, but he, he's so deeply upset that his father doesn't trust him and that his father thinks he should kill himself and that it's the will of his father that he decides that he, he will and he commits suicide. And then, at the same time then, Meng Chen is captured and imprisoned. So once Fushu, the previous crown prince, is confirmed to be dead, the plotters, Zhao Gao, the eunuch, and Lai Shi, the prime minister, return to the capital, Zhang Yang, and they announce the emperor has died. And now we are in 206 BC. They immediately, upon arriving home, have other princes, 17 of them, executed by pulling them apart with chariots. So the usual old school, uh, you know, chin form of torture and legalist punishment. The now second emperor Huey, Lai Shi and Zhao Gao are in full control of the empire. Where could it possibly go wrong? Now, we go to where it possibly goes wrong. In 209 BC, in the kingdom of Chu, which is still under chin control at this point, there are 900 or so conscripts that are being transported. Now, during this process, there's a lot of heavy rain and there's poor road conditions and that leads to a delay. Now, in our legalist world, a delay is enough to um, warrant the death penalty. So, so the five men who would be deemed responsible are going to be executed. And three of those officers of the five men possibly have enough sway in court. Now, this might be maybe they can bribe people. I'm not, I'm not fully sure of the details, but this is what's said about it. Three of the five are like, I can get out of this problem. But two of them are definitely going to have to be killed. Now, the two men are Chen Shi and Wu Guang. Now, the two revolt, you know, knowing they're going to die. Um, they revolt and they free the 900 conscripts because also, as part of the legalism action, the 900 people who are late will also be executed. So it's the whole, everybody is responsible for everything. So they free the 900 conscripts they, uh, and they're going to go a little bit on bit of a, a bit of a riot. So they get some white silk and they get some red ink and they write 
that Chen Shi shall be king. And then they roll it up and they hide it in the belly of a fish to be discovered. And then they, and then they have it. So it, they're creating a kind of like an omen situation where, you know, oh, someone's going to find a, 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 a scroll in a fish that's going to be magical and say, this man should be a king. So, so Wu Guang and Qi Shi seize a local gar- garrison and they kill the commanders of those garrison and they start a revolt with 100 chariots, 1,000 horses and 20,000 infantry. With this kind of just spur of activity, one of Chen Shi's commanders is declared the king of Chu. They're like, okay, we're going to declare a new king of Chu and this man will be the king of Chu. Now, unknown to this commander, Chen Shi has already declared himself as the king of Chu. Now, this is going to be a very awkward situation because we can't have two kings. So they decide we should kill the other appointed king. So, so Chen Shi has that king killed and many have his other subordinates killed as well, suspecting them of committing treason or plotting coups. So this rebellion has not started well and it's not going to go any better. Now, simultaneously, because Chu did that, Chu, Wei, Zhao and Qi, they all declare new kings. Um, you know, the first emperor is dead. So now is the time to revolt. So the next step is that Wu Guang is actually killed by his troops and Chen rules his rebel forces for a total of six months before he's defeated by an unknown number of Qin forces. And in the end, Chen Shi is assassinated by his right-hand man, which is the position of the charioteer. So it's a real cluster of a rebellion, but that little spark starts other little rebellions around the area. So it's not that this one is like an amazing, you know, leap in progression or an amazing uh, rebellion that's going to going to remove the chin but it's the, it's the spark that ignites all of the other sparks around it a little later in 209 bc the chin are invaded from the east through the hangju pass in the wei valley and a messenger informs the second emperor Huey of the events that have just happened and the emperor just has the messenger killed it's like don't come to me with bad news i don't want to hear bad news i'm in charge <laughs> so gonna go well yeah th- th- this is the caliber of human being you're dealing with where it's like don't you don't tell me any bad news you know it, Toxic positivity. Now watch me shoot these fish in a barrel. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. So, with the messenger killed, the next step is that the Chin lose a battle, surprisingly. This is going to be a big upset against a second rebel army of about thirty to 40,000 troops. Now, we don't have the details of what the Chin had against them. Could have been a small garrison, small unit, so it's not included in our history machine figures here. But the Chin have lost. So, Zhao Gao, now playing up the role of villain here, decides to organise that in the court of the second emperor, the second emperor is going to have little to no contact with anybody else except Zhao Gao. Now, Lai Shi, who's been trying to meet with the emperor and offer some kind of counsel in these now troubled times, is just totally outfoxed by Zhao Gao, who arranges it that Lai Shi can only meet the second emperor during the most inconvenient times. And as such, the emperor, the second emperor, Huey, that is, starts to think that Lai Shi is kind of slighting him and treating him like a child. It's like, I'm, I'm here trying to have supper and then he comes to tell me something important or I'm about to go to bed and he tells me something important. You know, it, he kind of goes, am I just on his beck and call here? He does not realise that I am the second emperor, not him. So unfortunately for Lai Shi, Lai Shi's son is the one who failed to kind of stop the rebellion for Chen Shi. And now because Lai Shi has no access to Huey properly, he can't defend his son's actions and he, he can't stamp out any spiralling rumours. So Lai Shi writes a letter severely condemning Zhao Gao and his recent actions. Now this is a big mistake because the only direct way to the emperor is through this man anyway. So the last thing you want to do is heavily criticise him. 
So Lai Shi is arrested. He is tortured until he provides a confession to treason. And then after that, the Emperor Huey condemns Lai Shi to a death by a very elaborate execution known as the Five Penalties. And I'll take a little bit of a side note to talk about the Five Penalties. So the Five Penalties is an elaborate way to execute a human being. The various penalties have actually changed over time. But at this time, the five ones that would be done is number one, you tattoo or brand the forehead. Number two, you amputate the nose and the ears. Number three, you remove the fingers and the feet. And number four, you slowly flog a man to death. And then the last penalty, number five, is you expose the now remaining corpse and severed head in public and just let it rot. So even though, that's a horrible way to go, even though Lai Shi was sentenced by this unusually elaborate death penalty, instead they just cut him in two at the waist, which, you know, <laughs> you think about it, you're like, oh, oh God, wow, that, that was the soft option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah if, you'd, if you'd start with the cut in two at the waist, I would have thought that was pretty horrific. But given the alternative. Yeah, it's. It's, 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 it's got to say that it's people can be very creative when it comes to death penalties. And uh, that seems to be a relatively creative one. So, yeah, he's cutting two at the waist. So we've, we've lost our, you know, our counterbalance now to Zhao Gao. So Lai Shi has been taken out. And in this post Lai Shi world, Zhao Gao is completely uncontested. And he decides to really test his limits. This is going to be a funny story, but we're going to go through it anyway. Zhao Gao captures a deer. He brings the deer to court. He presents this deer to Huey in front of the whole court and exclaims to the second emperor Huey, this is a horse. Now the court has been so cowed by Zhao Cao's actions that nobody actually speaks up to contradict him. And the second emperor sitting on the throne turns around and protests that, I'm sorry, but this is a deer. I can clearly see it's a deer. It has antlers. It's not a horse, it is a deer. I can see it. And Zhao Gao replies with something to the effect of, Are you sure you're feeling okay? Because I and everyone else here can thoroughly assure you, this is a horse. And the second emperor now thinks he's going crazy. So he decides to get some fresh air. He wanders the streets. He gets into a small incident with uh, with a man. And then the second emperor pulls out a crossbow and kills him. So it, it very obviously quickly escalated. And then Zhao Gao has the second Emperor Huey confined to the palace to kind of go, you're not well, things aren't okay, you need to be, you know, kept out of this. You know, we we deal with so many people who've like ordered the deaths of thousands and millions, but it's particularly horrible just to see the up close and personal like abusive behavior and just like on a personal level, he was just terrible. <laughs> He is. Now, remember, we're probably being painted this really True. horrible story by, by the grand historian. I mean, they're probably all terrible, but yeah, just getting... <laughs> but it, it, it's what the situation is. Yeah, this um, propaganda's working on me anyway. I hate the guy now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, with the second emperor now effectively locked up, Zhao Gao plans, I'm going to have a coup with my brother-in-law, Yan Yue. So, <laughs> they storm the palace, and they command the emperor to kill himself, and the second emperor, Huey, then does he commits suicide and he dies now Zhao attempts to declare himself as an emperor and this does not go down because he is a eunuch and a eunuch cannot be emperor so none of the court officials and nobles as cowed as they are follow him they go no you can have a puppet king but you you Zhao Gao cannot be the emperor that's the that's the line <laughs> that's the line we've driven you know we put in the sand 
So Zhao Gao kind of going, ah, oh, damn it, I had a total puppet king now and now I don't have anything. Uh, I can't declare myself as emperor. He makes a summons for the grandson of the first emperor to come to the palace. And this man is named Zhai uh, Ying. So Zhai Ying refuses the summon because he goes, well, the last time my uncles were summoned to the palace, they were all pulled apart by chariots and, and cut to pieces. So what I'll do is I will, um, I, w- I won't just say I'm not going to go. I'm going to say I'm very, very ill and I can't make the trip. Very reasonable response. Very, very reasonable response. He goes, yeah, you know, you just, you just killed my, <laughs> you just killed my uncles. And yeah, I, I'm definitely next on the chopping block. I'm not taking any chances here. Zhai Ying is so worried about it, he doesn't go and answer the summons. Now, Zhao Giao, desperate, kind of goes, all right, instead, I'm going to go visit you. Now, this obviously panics Prince Zhai Ying even more. He goes, oh, no, he's coming to me. I'm definitely dead. So when <laughs> Zhao Giao meets Zhai Ying in person, Zhai Ying just stabs him. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he just stabs him and kills Zhao Giao and goes, okay, it was me or him. That was it. So throughout the chaos of these Qin internal politics, while all of this is going on, Two other men step up to take advantage of this madness. Now, this is, you know, outside the realms of the palace, outside the court, the court shenanigans, we're going to have the other rebellions are stepping up. And these two men are Liu Bang and Jiang Yu. Now, each of them are leaders of various rebel forces. I'm going to start here because Liu Bang is very, very important in Chinese history. He is going to be one of the founders of the Han Dynasty. So, you know, it's, it's all going to go up for him. And his origin has since been kind of shrouded in a mythical history. And we have to remember that the Grand Historian is writing right now for the Han Dynasty about their founder. So everything that is said about him is usually in this Herculean positive light of he's incredible, he's phenomenal, he's an, he's an outgoing person, he's loved. You know, he, everything he does is morally correct. So you really have to take his actions with a grain of salt and all the stories surrounding him with a grain of salt. So to start, and this is his origin, Liu Bang is originally of peasant stock and it was said that during his birth there was a thunderstorm and his father went outside during that thunderstorm and saw a great omen at the moment of his birth and it was a sky dragon swimming through the clouds. Now I'm going to pause for a second. That might be the most Chinese thing I have ever heard. At At the moment of your birth there was a sky dragon swimming through the clouds. So you kind of... It's pretty, pretty, you know, it's a pretty big over-the-top omen. So he comes from very humble stock. Liu Bang became a rebel as a result of an administration slip-up. So he was a low-level officer serving for the Qin, and he was transporting about a thousand or so prisoners intended for labour camps for the first emperor's tomb. A handful of these prisoners escaped, and as a result, due to our legalism, policies and action, the punishment for a slip-up was death for him and death for all of the prisoners. So in a moment of in for a penny, in for a pound, I might as well be hung for a sheep as well for a lamb, Liu Bang decides to free all of the remaining prisoners because you're going to be killed anyway and I'm going to be killed. And what we'll do is we'll become fugitives of the Chin and we're going to live lives as, as bandits. So they agree to it because otherwise they're dead and they are, you know, they are prisoners who are going to be transported. But this is the best case scenario. So this is really the biggest negative of legalism you can see you do a tiny thing and everything is doled out for the death penalty so if they can only kill you once so you might as well take advantage of it once you do now you have a a do what you want card the moment you have a death sentence and that has to be i think i think and you might agree with me carl that is definitely the biggest fault of it is they don't have some kind of sliding scale of punishment it's everything is the death penalty the only other option is death so may as well go all in on this yes (laughs) like nothing to lose yeah 
So in uh, 209 BC, uh, Liu Bang joins forces with another rebel, uh, Wao Guang, and the two are running rebel armies around Qin during Chen Shi's rebellion, if you remember, he was the one who was killed by the charioteer, but they're running around, you know, causing ruckus as well. And over the course of the rebellion, these two men kind of progress, they gain a lot of support, they become, you know, charismatic figures, and they get more and more support and troops over time. So all of this now, with our, you know, Zhao Gao murdered, our second emperor dead, our Qin in kind of political internal turmoil, while everything else around them seems to be collapsing and kings are declaring themselves left, right and centre. This is going to lead to the battle that ends the Qin hegemony. And this is a very famous battle and is known as the Battle of Julu. So just before this battle, the commander Zhang Yu orders his men to carry only enough food and supplies for three days. And he asks them to destroy their cauldrons. Now, they would have used cauldrons to make their meals and to sink the ships they were using for transport. So Zhang Yu was sending a very clear message to his troops. The only way you're going to make out of this alive is by victory against the enemy and to steal their supplies and their cauldrons and their resources. As a result, Zhang Yu's troops fight with absolutely everything they have, complete back-to-the-wall kind of stuff, and the Qin army suffer a crushing defeat, and the Qin supply lines are compromised, and the goose is cooked. It's over for the Qin. Now, just as a, a little note, there's an idiom about this battle, and it, it translates roughly to breaking cauldrons and sinking boats, and it's a phrase used today in China and it's quite similar to like the English phrase to cross the Rubicon it's one of these this is a point of no return so to break the cauldrons and sink the boats now with this wonderful victory Cahal what does the history machine think about it so yeah this one was definitely an upset win um, and we've kind of gotten used to very like lopsided where the Chin were just winning all around them and being expected to win so this is our first really big upset in a while the history machine only gave Zhang Yu maybe about a 35% chance to win. That's pretty poor by any standard. And I think underdog victory here, the kind of desperation in the battle comes through because he took about 22% more casualties than expected because this is not a person going on the defensive. If he goes on the defensive, he dies. Just the same as going all out. But the casualties dealt over expectation were 75% higher. Oh, wow. Okay. Expected. So it was, it, this was one of the bloodiest battles, both proportionally and I think in absolute numbers, because we were dealing with, you know, many, many tens of thousands on both sides. But yeah, definitely, you know, blood, bloody on both sides, but especially the Chin just took massive losses. This was a whole army more or less wiped out. That's incredible. I, and as I said, yeah, that's back to the wall kind of stuff it was literally a moment of like if you don't win you're dead anyway there is no going back we have to push forward and um i suppose if you got to roll the dice that way that's the best way to try and you know load them in your favor and it, it worked so i suppose that's a that's an example in history you can look to of like y- you you got to do it after this battle liu bang reaches the Qin capital first and he meets a newly appointed emperor and that emperor surrenders in an official ceremony with a, and it's noted, a small chariot. Now, this is the example that the Qin have really fallen far. They don't have the usual flair that they would normally have. It just signifies that he's surrendering in a small chariot. It's, it's not the case. Now, the Qin officials, you know, considering they're surrendering, they offer Liu Bang a tribute of cattle. Uh, but Liu Bang rejects it on the grounds that the people of the city need this food more than he does thus winning this popular support of the remaining people in the capital in his very benevolent style and his wonderful charismatic ways. Hooray. 
Um, so he's instantly loved then by the people he has just taken over, or at least that is what history writes about him. A month later, a Zhang Yu arrives with his army and he takes a much more different approach. He massacres everyone in there, he kills the ex-emperor, he burns palaces, he ruins the place, he sacks various cities, he, he takes it over. So he is now the new villain in our story. And um, Zhang Yu then takes the Qin Empire. He separates it into 19 various states and forms a confederacy. So, so he kind of goes, it, now's the time to break it up so we can't have this unifying power, but also I am in charge of this new, this new confederacy. So we could go on, but here we're going to end our story. And the reasoning is this episode is about the Qin Empire, where the Qin have come from. This whole series is pretty much their rise and fall. And this is now the point of the fall. So it's after only, and this sounds incredible. The Qin only had a hegemony for six years. So it's hundreds of years to conquer. And six years later, it's all fallen apart. And after this, a new dynasty will arise. And from here, we won't go into all the details and all of the battles involved, because it does include a civil war. But in the outcome, our new hero, Liu Bang, emerges triumphant over Zhang Yu, and he becomes the first emperor of the new Han Dynasty. And we'll eventually come back to the Han at some point. But what makes the Han interesting is the Han last a very long time. The Qin are six years, the Han are hundreds of years. But the Han are the contemporaries of Caesar. They are going to be the people in charge of China around that time. They are going to be the next unifying force. But importantly, they're both not the first force. And this is why the Qin gets so much credit. It's why the area is called China in the Western world. Because these people did the back-breaking work and the slaughtering and the, the paying and spending and taking of human lives to unite areas that were not united, to put it under the one banner, only to give it to the next dynasty to take over. So... We're going to go and work on our countdowns here, but I'm just going to mention something very quickly. We are not going to include Liu Bang or Zhang Yu in this top list. And the reasoning is we haven't factored in for these scores their civil war. And if there's one thing the history machine loves, and Cahal, you can attest to it, it loves a civil war. It really spikes a score. Lots of 50-50 battles, basically. And because we're not including that in, in the scores we currently have for them, we're not going to include the Han Dynasty figures in this. Because ultimately, this is the story of the rise and fall of the Qin. And they have now fallen, and we should look at the commanders and operators of the Qin. Because ultimately, the, the guys who are left at the very end anyway, don't really have a standout at all. Um, they're, not, they're not phenomenal figures. The Qin, in, within six years, have gone from heyday super conquerors to just blown out of the water. And it... It's, it would be unfair to talk about Liu Bang or Zhang Yu in this and just put them, you know, right at the top or something without giving further why they'll end up getting really good scores later down the line. So with all of that in mind, we would include generals who have three or more battles, they have a reasonable score and that they would place on this list. And because we're cutting out two people anyway, we're going to include the generals of the previous episodes to give you a full kind of you know, list on who should be placed where and why, which covers the total warring states period history and will include, you know, various big names that we've already covered in earlier episodes. So it's a great way just to wrap up the whole thing. So we're going to have seven people. So Cahill, coming in, please, at number seven. 
So number seven, kind of an interesting one. We have Li Jin for the Jin, and I think he's interesting because he had three battles. He had two wins, but is still has a negative wins over expectation. Uh, okay. He has minus uh, 0.126 wins over expectation. Yes. So in other words, like while he did win two, that third one, he should have won as well. Okay. Um, so basically, he was always the favorite and didn't quite live up to that. He also took... Uh, about 24% more casualties than expected and dealt out 5% fewer than expected. Yeah, so he's the guy who expands in the south. Yeah, and it was just the times that he won, he was almost a certain to win, yeah. and then the loss yeah. was like 50-50. Yeah. So the breakdown of his achievements is effectively he is the commander who does conquer and incorporate the southern lands into the Qin Empire. So I suppose that alone should give you a ranking, you know, in the top seven, that you can incorporate that much territory. Now, I know... And you'll agree with me, Cahal, the Chin are on the winning side in that situation. Um, yeah, it was basically the history machine felt he was pretty much certain to win the two battles that he did win. Anyone else could have done it, but he was yes, the one who did but it. he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's the whole, uh, it, it's like the, the famous artist, like, well, I could have painted that. It's like, well, you didn't. He did. So so he gets the credit kind of for being there. So not quite default, but close. So yeah, so reasonable, I suppose. So with that, we're just going to jump aside from him. So coming in then, please, at number six. Number six, we have Huan Yi, uh, eight battles, five wins, one draw, and similar again, like winning record, but he was very much expected to win most of the battles that he did, whereas the battles that he lost or drew, it was a big upset. So he, he has minus uh, 0.05 wins over expectation. So basically he's average, <laughs> you know, that that's close enough that you can say he is average. He's standard. Casualties yeah. uh, taken were... Higher than expected, about 8% higher, but nothing crazy. Casualties dealt 5% higher, nothing crazy. So he's he's kind of like a good uh, baseline general where he, he is performing very, very close to the expectation. Yes. Well, that's good. That's good. Now, actually, I'm going to take a minute to step aside here and talk a tiny bit about statistics because often when we hear and hear the phrase, he's average, right? In the modern world, that means something horrible. It's like, yeah. ah, he's an average guy. He's an okay, whatever. But statistically speaking, average means you are better than half of the world. And not to time date this podcast too much, but, you know, 8 billion people around the planet right now. If you're average, you're better than 4 billion people. So so it, it's to be, and especially to be an average general. You're not an average soldier. You're not an average lieutenant. You're not an average officer. You're an average general. So being an average general still means you're an incredibly formidable human being. And in, you know, for these kind of armies, and they remind me a little bit of the Alexandrian ones as well, um, to be in charge of like this, you know, this machine that you're putting, you're putting control of. And you could run it on autopilot. You could be a terrible commander and your officers around you will correct it for you. But so, so to score okay or to score average or to be a typical general is still meaning you're a general so i know we're sometimes it sounds very harsh that we talk about it but like to go he gets an average score it's like that means he's good doesn't mean he's bad it means of all the generals that we have he's in the top half and that's still a good thing to have yeah and even if if you go through our our overall database for all generals in all situations if you're a non-named general you're performing below that Yes, like you, you are, you are going to be like minus point uh, one wins over expectation. You know, you're going to be ten percent worse than the average if you're. So if you're named, that usually means 
you're you're competent at the very least. Yes, at least competent. Yeah. So I know we we throw it, and I just wanted to put it there because we say it all the time, and you think about it, you go, no, the guy's still in a top list. You know, the fact that he's scoring on the score sheet, like oh, he scores average, like, but it's it's a it's a good thing to score in this situation. You do not want to be, you can be, but you don't want to be a low performing general with a phenomenal army. You'll still win, but you'll perform very poorly. And even to say average, they're still getting, this person is still getting a lot out of their army. It's not like they're doing nothing. So I think that's just a, in the world of statistics, people often hear the word average or mean, or, you know, there's, there's some basic terms, but like, um, it really in the modern world has a very negative connotation but to, to put it in perspective here for the, these military commanders it does mean you're better than half of the people so it's it's still pretty good and you know usually that means you're on the winning half and that's the important part so Cahal coming in then please at number five so number five we have Zhao Kong and he's kind of funny enough because he came up against him a few times he's kind of Similar stats to Huan Yi, but from the other side. He had four battles, only one win. Yes, but because he yes, was expected yes. to lose the three that he lost, whereas that win was a big upset, his stats yes. come in very, very similar. Um, and it is very similar. He's, you know, 1% better than Huan Yi. Deals, deals out 13% more casualties than expected, yeah. which is good, but takes about the same uh, above expectation. So... Not very good. Strong offensively, poor defensively, uh, and in terms of wins, again, just coming in roughly average. He was kind of unlucky that he was on the side that was projected to lose most of the time, but still managed the upset victory uh, in in one instance. Pretty good work there. And I suppose that harpers back to our last one. If you swapped, you know, our number five and number, sorry, our, you know, our number six and our number five, if you swapped our number six and number five, they'd perform equally as well. Like, as you said, 1% difference. And they did face off against one another a few times yeah, as well, yeah. which is interesting. That actually feels very Olympics, you know, like I won by one, half a second, 1%. Yeah. It's those seconds that make champions. Like, so, so I suppose that's it. The tiny marginal differences that you kind of go, ah, that that's the difference between the win and the loss here. And even funnily enough, it's the guy here who is scoring a tiny bit better than him, but just had a lot less resources. Okay, so coming in then, please, at number four. So at number four, we have Chan Yu uh, for Ooh, the okay. Jiangnu. And this is another one, again, where it's one upset victory compensates for defeats because he had three battles, only one win. But that yes. puts his wins at, over expectation at about 0.17. In all three battles, he was basically between, like... He was given basically a 10 to 25% chance to win. Oh my god. So winning even one of them was a feat. Also impressive, he he didn't deal out any more casualties than expected, but his casualties sustained were about 13% fewer than expected. So strong defensive general for a very bad army relative to their opponents, but still managed to kind of basically stop them just getting obliterated uh, straight away. It is really good to see that we have somebody for the Zhang Nu in this list as well, because I think that really adds to just the caliber of uh, what the Steppe Nomads are. Because, you know, spoiler for any later seasons and that bits and pieces, but it turns out Steppe Nomads like conquering territories in China and they tend to be very successful at doing it. So it's wonderful to see that we have a warlord like person here be given the credit of it's not just a mindless barbarian, you know, uh, swarming you with numbers and coming in and taking territories this is somebody who you know tactically being recorded here goes he performed very very well with the resources he has because remember the history machine loves horse archers 
So if you're scoring this well, you are a very effective cavalry commander. You know what you're doing. And that, that alone would say a lot about how well this person is scoring. So it's great to see that, you know, the, the northern steppe tribes are actually producing very intelligent and capable commanders. So that's, that's a fantastic thing to bring in. To have a Zhang new commander in here, that's wonderful. I think it, it's really showing that they were a threat and they were a threat coming down from the north and had the potential to, to give these guys a run for their money. So Cahal then, please, coming in at number three. So the first of the top three, we have Wang Jian. Nice. Five battles, four wins and a draw. So we're finally getting into the ones without defeats here. Yes. Uh, he had 0.205 wins over expectation. He that's took 6% yeah, fewer casualties than expected and dealt out 12% more casualties than expected. So this is where we're moving from the like kind of competent range into the you know, definitely Great. good and yeah, or at least good, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're and right. actually, yeah. and actually on the winning side as well, not just kind yeah, of yeah, doing yeah. well with what they had. These were ones that had the resources and made use of them. Yeah, but performing, yeah, performing over the expectation of what they had. It's like oh, you got all these resources, you don't just win. That would be what somebody would do who possibly even is below the average score. What you're doing is exceeding the win, which is very impressive. And that's wonderful. Um, so actually, we have a, a current general which is very impressive. Um in his ways to do it. And I suppose he does come from the long military line, you know, the military family. So the apple is falling very close to the tree here. And we are we are getting very nice similarities and, and the military family is paying off. It just reminded me of the earlier episode where we, we didn't have that case, <laughs> which was embarrassing. But um, it's very good to see him in here to actually have a, a good score at the late stage of the, of the chin in action. So I won't harp on too much about it. We will fly into number two now. So number two, we have uh, Bai Chi. Ah, uh, he's back again. Four battles, four wins. Now, this is number two in terms of wins over expectation, which was 0.277. So very strong. Like, he's a, a quarter more chance of winning than the average general. Yes. His casualties sustained, also solid, takes 10% fewer than expected. But the casualties dealt are 51.5% more than expected, which is... Far, far, far beyond anyone else on the list. That is, if you, you say had a battle and an army had 10,000 people and the history machine projected that against a normal general, they would lose 2,500. Against Bai Chi, they're losing 7,500. <laughs> that is, like, he is... he is He's a butcher. Obliterates armies. And he was usually expected to win. He was usually on the side projected to win, but... He would make sure that the other army would not be coming back to them at a later date. Yeah. Isn't it funny to see that that's, that's what he would do? And it's probably, it's part of the, the Qin steamroller that like pushed its way across China and, and unified that region. As I said, he's meant to have reportedly killed a million people. So it's, it's this power through and obliteration of other states to go, you don't get to recover from this. This is your... Like it's it's not like you you surrender and we make our terms and maybe you become a, a vassal or a satellite state or something. It's like no, you don't exist anymore. And because there's nobody here, we just take this area. It is unbelievably bloody. And I know you've given that great example of having ten thousand. If you were meant to lose two, you've lost seven and a half against him. It's a very lopsided butchering of human beings. It's pretty outrageous. Okay, so, you know, uh, as we said, we've got a horrendously aggressive and violent commander coming in at number two, and he's for the chin. So, Cahal, who is coming in at number one? And to adamant listeners who are very vigilant, you'll probably know who it is. So this is Li Mu, 
Uh, five battles, four wins and a draw. Wins over expectation, 0.354. So this one is a very different style where it's much more, I suppose, deliberate, much more strategic, a lot less bloody. Yes. Casualties sustained is, is roughly expected, dealt out 70% more casualties than expected. But I think he's an interesting one because at the start, his first couple battles, he is on the side that have all the resources. And over time, they're kind of dwindling and he's basically all that's kind of keeping them in it. So his, his early battles, like he would have a much higher score, really, if his, if his early battles were against tougher opponents, maybe, because he mm-hmm. was expected, he was given kind of 80... 85 you know 85 percent yeah it's given, given great numbers but to then win, towards yeah. the end even getting that draw that was a massive performance over expectation you know he gained a draw out of what was a 75 percent chance to be a defeat he's even then another of his wins again was like another one he was given 25 percent chance to win so um he was one who really i suppose just was able to win under a broad variety of situations and conditions he wasn't some he, he won when he had the you know, the obvious advantage and then managed to not lose too many troops in the process. And then he managed to kind of salvage wins where he shouldn't have when he was the underdog. Gee, there's a lot there, isn't there? But I mean, I know we probably went on some of the earlier episodes about him, but um, it is incredible to go that there's that caliber of a person. And he's, he is he was the dam that was holding back the total conquest. And when he was gone and he wasn't defeated in open battle it was a case of they sent it a spy they pulled him out they had him killed and it was just a perfect storm of events to go we do not want this man around now eventually and you'll agree with me i'd say Cahill, the numbers the numbers game was against him if the chin yeah. just kept attacking eventually he would have been defeated but it would have been one of these spheric victories of like we spent way too much just trying to get this guy out it's easier to go around him and deal with it later yeah. And they went around him by having him removed and just having him removed. It's not like they went, we got to get rid of him and the Royal Guard or somebody else or a bunch of advisors. They just got rid of him. And that will tell you the level of ability that yeah. must have been behind this guy that by just remove him and we have their state. So I'm awfully impressed. I think you probably are too, just in the stats and the numbers and, and the, the figures. So I think we'll talk at a tiny bit more now because we're just going to close our chapter for China for a while and I have to say and you agree with me Cahill there was a lot of research involved in this and um, a lot of very fun stories and it was fun to, to, to learn about it and to, to, to read it and try and get translations but it's been a very very funky sequence of events with great little anecdotes and ridiculous stories that are just filtered on through it and the Chinese history as a whole it's colossal like this is the start this is one of the serious starting points you have a lot of other dynasties after this, you know, the the Han, the the Shang, the Tang, like um, you know, the Mongolians who conquered the area with with your um, Kublai Khan taking over eventually. So it is a very rich and vibrant history with a lot of battles and a lot of commanders and a, and a lot of history. And it's 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 a sequence of history that we have to admit we're very ignorant of, and also that I think a lot of people in the West are incredibly ignorant of all of this history. And maybe in the next couple of years or somewhere down the line in, in the future, it'll just become more aware to people that there's a whole there's a whole section of Chinese history that is there for the ripe, either even in like TV adaptations or or just in just in some good books. Like it's something that really feels that people should know more about this. The scale and the scope of it is outrageous to follow the Qin from their start, their humble beginnings, their almost Macedonian-like beginnings to come over and conquest all of this region, unify it, 
And it's almost a case study of how to conquer somewhere and lose it so quickly that the biggest threats to an empire are either an internal and an external force. And the one that took this down and took it down hard was an internal force. And it's when you have this kind of messing and this kind of political, you know, ineptness and political shenanigans and awful management that you can see something that was a juggernaut for literally centuries taking territories and eating territories around it and just consuming other states eventually fell apart due to just the whims of a couple of rulers. So it's a, I think it's a fascinating story. It is definitely one that I knew pretty much nothing about going into it. And it is just, there's so much there. And, you know, it, it's definitely, <laughs> there's a lot of it. And I, we, we always have this with anything where kind of legend and history definitely get mixed a lot. But the legend side of it is really entertainingly written. So I almost don't mind. Yeah, there's just some really fascinating stuff. And as you say, like just such a long build up and then it all falls apart so quickly. You know, it's I know it's not that well known in the West, but I think if it become enters the public consciousness a bit more, I can see so many adaptions and fiction, you know, fictional adaptions and alternate history things spinning off of it. And I'm sure there are probably plenty in Chinese that we don't know about, but um, it's a really, really fascinating period. Yeah. And and just the sheer, I think the, the scale of things is something that I can't get over when you're so used to European history um, and what's considered big scale and big time in, in Europe is usually pretty tiny up until you get into the most recent 200 years. Just the, the scale of the logistics and everything that you see in China is yes, totally yeah, unmatched, yeah. I think, anywhere else, probably. It is mad to look at the, the scale. Now, I know, and you agree with me, some of the numbers are definitely inflated at this point. But later in their history, they kind of won't be. There will be very big numbers similar to this where, like, it won't have been an exaggeration. You'd be like, wow, that's incredible. The, the part that blew me away as well was the, the, the level of manpower that they had had, especially for, like, government and building projects where you go, we have two million men we can just have build things. And even today, if you got into a country and said, yeah, we have two million labourers, uh, just builders and constructors, and we're going to build like, we're just going to build a couple of buildings here or a couple of palaces or something, that the, the scope of it is outrageous. Even the, the explanation I probably had earlier about the terracotta warriors and the idea of burying a man with 8,000 clay statues is impressive. And they go, but what's probably more impressive is that you don't have more. Yeah, these, these are all kind of stats and figures that you'd see in a modern, even large country, and you'd say this is a country in a boom time or something. Like, it's, yeah, it's not... Yeah. It's not a scale you see often throughout history. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, so I think we're going to close our chapter for now on Chinese history. We're going to move on to something a little bit more familiar. For our next episode, we're going to go way back west again. And we're going to look back again towards the Roman Empire. But we're going to focus on another figure who is definitely not overshadowed in history. He is either loved or hated, depending on who is writing about him. But we're going to cover Constantine the Great and his whole story and his whole figures, because I think he's going to be a great figure to look at and talk about the real, real late Roman Empire and what's involved with it, because he is going to be a figure that we're going to have a lot of fun talking about. And we can talk about where Rome has gone from its glory days to the age of Constantine and where the origins of really how Christianity is interwoven with the West, because it's very hard to talk about a Christian West without mentioning this man. And I mean, there's going to be a city called Constantinople. It's now Istanbul. But like, that's why that was a bulwark for Christianity for such a long time. And it's not just, you know, pulled out of the ground or pulled out of the air. There is a big connection to this guy and to 
kind of a dominating Christian church in Europe. I don't think you could imagine a Europe filled with Christianity if you don't have this guy. So it'll be very important and very interesting to talk about him. So I've had a lot of fun covering this episode. So I think we're going to sign off again. And if you want to contact us, you can go to our website, which is historymachinepodcast.com. And we have our links and connections there. And you can get us, meet us on the socials and uh, you can reach out to us. And you can email us as well at historymachinepodcast at gmail.com. And thank you very much for listening. And thank you for your time. I have been Niall. And I've been Cahill. And we'll see you again soon.